Lord, thank you for meeting with us in our worship today. We marvel at the way the gospel is. When you look at things properly, the gospel is in one way or another illustrated throughout the scriptures. And we are so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you were the one who were willing to take all of the punishment of our sins and be perfectly obedient for us that God might be just and the justifier of the one who believes in you. What a marvel the gospel is. Now, Lord, as we come to the Emerald Palace of biblical counseling, we pray that you will begin to teach us these fundamental things. Remind us, as we're going to learn from the scriptures today, that that, uh, each of us in Christ is competent on one level or another to counsel others. Show us that, we pray, through Christ, the wonderful counselor. Amen. 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 Okay, you should have a handout, and I think for the rest of the class you'll be getting these because I wanted, I wanted to distill, like in this case, we're three chapters in trip, following the wonderful counselor and building relationships. Okay, so follow along, and you should have your Bibles. We're going to look up a few of these texts. Okay, some of this is review. For all problems, people do not need programs, principles, or platitudes They need Christ. You'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus said, John 15, abide in me and I in you, because without me you can do nothing. And that again is why ultimately secular counseling can rearrange furniture and sweep up dust, but it really doesn't solve problems. The goal is radical personal transformation, beginning with the heart, and only Christ can do that work, and that's why the bedrock of all counseling is praying for people. And one of the things that in my counseling, um, because, you know, people will tend to trust in you. Secular counseling is kind of a priesthood. If I can get the right kind of priest to speak with, uh, he will not only absolve me of my sins, but he'll he'll make me better kind of a thing. And and, and a pastor wants to avoid that. So I'll simply say, Lord, I'm not, I can't change these hearts. But Lord Jesus, you're the wonderful counselor, you're the counselor who does wonders, and you want to always turn people away from yourself to Christ. Which is the second point. We're meant to represent Christ to others. We are to incarnate him by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so Colossians 1.27, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 um, 2 Corinthians works heavily, all the New Testament does, but especially 2 Corinthians out of our union with Christ and what that means and suffering and so on. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse and, and uh, verse 23, the very end, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. As for your brothers, they are messengers of the churches the glory of Christ. And frankly, every part of me when I'm looking at this is, well, the churches are the glory of Christ, which they are. But that's not what he's saying here. The thrust is on the people that go out from the churches who are, literally, it's his angels. Angels are messengers. They're servants. And those individuals are the glory of Christ. I mean, think about that, folks. That's why we talk about individuals being competent to counsel. So we're meant to represent Christ to others or incarnate him by the work of the Holy Spirit in us. 
And 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 is about the church as a body. This is how we become instruments through whom Christ does his work. And what is his work? It's saving. And, and some Reformed people, they'll go nuts when you talk with them about saving people. Yeah, I know Jesus saves, and that's true. James says, if anyone stops someone from wandering in his own way and brings him back, he has saved a soul from saved the soul and covered a multitude of sins. Now, yes, only Jesus does that. But let's start talking about the human instrument as well here. And that includes not only saving, but comforting and encouraging and exhorting in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and, and verse 6. You see how that, that comes out where Paul uh, says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. That's the word for the Holy Spirit as a paraclete. He, he comes alongside of us. And, and what does he do? Comfort probably is not the main theme, but we do that. You're encouraging troops in battle is, is the idea that, that's here and exhorting. And here's the key text for biblical counseling, Romans 15 and verse 14. When Jay Adams came out in was it 1966, I guess it was, with his book, Competent to Counsel, um, this, was his, this was his text that he used, Romans 15 and verse 14, <clears throat> I myself am satisfied about you, the Romans, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to, the, 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 Jay Adams says, nuthetically confront is the word. It's the Greek word, nuthetain. Nous is the mind, Okay. And the idea of instruction here, which would be a different Greek word, it's to reach the heart by way of the mind, okay? Uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind is the idea. And Paul says, not to these professional honchos, but he says, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to Nuthetically confront. We talked about nuthetic counseling. You're able to do counseling, at least on that level, reaching the mind, uh, reaching the heart by way of the mind. Um, and, and, you know, I, I realize, folks, Presbyterian and Reformed people are accused of being too cerebral, okay? Yeah, you really have to think in a Reformed sermon or, or a worship service. And, and all of us, if we're sensitive, we struggle to want to be understood by everyone, okay? The fact of the matter is, God works through our minds. And you don't help anybody by eviscerating the mind and playing on the emotions, which frankly is a lot of what evangelical worship is, okay? So, so, so the, the importance of, of getting people to think in such a way that their heart is, is affected. Okay, so the goal is to get to the person's heart, uh, Proverbs 23 and verse 26. And that's, the, the ESV translates it a little bit differently, but uh, Proverbs 23 and verse 26 brings out both of these things together. 
My son, give me your heart and let your eyes, the, the word observe, it makes sense with eyes, the, the word is delight in my ways. Give me your heart, and that's connected with the eyes of faith seeing God's ways are beautiful. They're, they're right, they're good, okay? And, and uh, so observing my ways. Now this is the major challenge in all counseling situations. You are to look, you ought to look for what the person is struggling with beneath the surface problem. People come to you and they say, look, I've got an addiction problem. Um, I've got got a problem with my anger. Uh, I've got a problem with my communication and my marriage. I, I don't get along well with people. Those are surface things. It's not that they're unimportant. But but they're not the root problem. You talk about you talk about um, what's the when we say surface problems, and surface issues, and then root problems and root issues. And your goal is to get to the root. And some of those things are li- listen. You know w- what is a person afraid of? When I'm with young people, I will ask them, "What's your biggest fear as you face the culture that you're in?" We did that, <clears throat> Margaret, at Elizabeth's birthday with the girls. That were there. It was very interesting. Um, one of them said, I'm afraid of inflation. The, the other one said, we're afraid of war. Okay, instability. So, but what, what are they afraid of? Anger. What, what are you angry? You know, that you, something is mentioned, like the girl that I was working with with her parents years ago, did your parents ever forgive you? And she was angry. No, they never did. So you see where the anger is. Look for that. A sense of guilt. People don't want to talk about something. They feel so guilty about it, but, but they need to. Anxiety, which is, of course, a big one in our culture. Aloneness. People are alone, and they, and they, and they don't want to be alone. It's not good for a person to be alone. Or envy or covetousness. The desire for revenge. Another one I would add, as I mentioned at the prayer meeting, shame is a huge one. I'm so ashamed of what I did. And, and they, they may not feel personal guilt so much, but they see how it's impacted others. Those, those are your entry gates to begin to deal with the heart with people. I'll give you some ways you can get to that. Okay, so how do you be a representative of Christ in a person's life, which is what counseling is. And the four points that Tripp makes, we're just going to deal with the first one today, is love, know, speak, and do. And that's the order. Love, know, speak, and do. And developing those four elements is going to pretty much take us, well, at least for the next four weeks. What is love? Giving yourself for the good of another in concrete ways that really represent the love of Christ. Um, I don't know any better way to define love. Now, this is a little bit lengthy, but I want to read this illustration from Trip, pages 115 to 117. Um, Paul Tripp taught at my seminary, Alma Mater, Westminster. Uh, it was after I was there. I think he taught in the 80s. And... Um, he wrote a book called Dangerous Calling, in which part of what he opened up was the kind of reactions he got from seminary students. And this is, this is one illustration, 
page 75. And I read this, folks, because think the Haven's ministry with this. Understanding your heart's struggle, they were... Oh, no, I'm sorry, it's the wrong one. That's a different one. Uh, page 115. Uh, building relationships by entering their world. That's love. It was one of those moments that a teacher couldn't buy for a million dollars. I was teaching a counseling course required of all third-year seminary students in the pastoral track. This is Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia. The class tended to be populated by guys who thought that if they preached well-honed theological sermons, their congregations wouldn't need any personal ministry. They saw my course as a pointless addition to an overcrowded schedule. This did not make for a lively learning environment. The first year I taught the course, I jumped right into the material without trying to demonstrate its importance. It was a long, hard semester. The next year, I decided to begin each class with true pastoral horror stories until the class cried, Uncle. I told story after story of late-night emergencies and relational catastrophes that were scattered throughout my ministry as pastor. I kept it up until it was clear that the students were convinced that they needed what I was about to teach. In the middle of one of my graphic anecdotes, something happened that I will never forget. An exasperated future pastor threw up his hand and blurted out, all right, we know we're going to have these projects in our churches. Just tell us what to do with them so we can get back to the work of the ministry. Stupid statement, but a hush covered the room in his frustration, this man had verbalized the attitude of many pastors toward the world of biblical counseling, discipleship, and personal ministry. I knew that this was a golden teaching moment, and I wanted to be a good steward. I asked him to repeat the word that he had used for people in difficulty. In hesitating embarrassment, he mumbled, Projects as the other seminarians snickered in their seats. There were many things wrong with this young man's perspective on pastoral ministry, but the most serious is this. It was devoid of love. There was no zeal to incarnate the self-sacrificing love of Christ, which incidentally is the heart of what pastoral ministry is. He saw lost and struggling people as impediments to what he was called to do, and the need to respond to them as a huge interference. His view of ministry centered on well-delivered sermons and well-attended programs that would produce a thriving and growing church. He saw the church as a well-designed, well-led, successful organization. But when I look at the church, I see a hospital full of people in various stages of dealing with the disease of sin. Amen. Right? Is that the real world, folks? And, and folks, people don't need a concert. They need a doctor, okay? And, and, you, and you don't need cotton candy in a sermon. You, you need medicine and bread. 
Imagine a doctor coming out of an examination room to say to his receptionist, sick people, sick people, sick people. All I ever get is sick people. Why don't healthy people ever come and visit me? The church is full of people dealing with the effects of sin. People who are not fully formed into the image of Jesus Christ. The church is full of people who've lost their way and they don't even know it. Who haven't made a connection between their daily problems and the transforming grace of Christ. Everywhere you look, you will find couples who are struggling to love. Parents who are struggling to be patient. Children who are attracted to temptation and friends who battle the disappointments of imperfect relationships. This, says Paul Tripp, is 100% of the church's membership. The church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he has designed. The church is messy and inefficient, but it's God's wonderful mess, the place where he radically transforms hearts and lives. Mm-hmm. Brothers and sisters, this is the haven that you're hearing. In class that afternoon, I wondered how this student could have gotten it so wrong. But as I drove home that night, the closer I got, the more uptight I became. I was thinking, oh, Wouldn't it be nice to come home just once to a house that wasn't full of problems that I needed to solve? As I voiced that frustration, P.S., frustration's an adult temper tantrum, as I voiced that frustration to myself, it hit me. I was just like my student. I wanted children who'd never suffered the effects of the fall and who possessed the innate ability to make all the right choices. I wanted family devotions and a few lectures to produce children who would do quite well on their own. I, too, lacked the self-sacrificing love essential in a family full of sinners. Like my student, I saw my children as being in the way of the plan rather than the focus of it. That's I, I needed to read that, folks. Because I have to admit, as, as a pastor, and part of this is, I'm, I know Irish, you know, I am getting older, I'm getting tired, but I think, oh God, another problem. <laughs> you know? And I say, Lord, no, 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 there's no problems, there's only opportunities, so I say that. Folks, that's the real world. And when you see churches where people have the painted smiles and everything is nice, you're dealing with quote-unquote cultural Christianity, and I, for one, I don't want to be in that. Uh, that's, that's not for me. You're a smaller group of people. Anyway, our case, you got the point. Now, otherwise we'll never get done at times. So, okay, so now here's the pattern, and we're going to cover this uh, in the remaining few minutes. What do you do to love? One, enter the person's world. Two, incarnate the love of Christ. Three, identify with suffering. And four, accept with an agenda. That's important. Don't just accept, accept with an agenda. So number one, enter the person's world. And remember, this is threatening to people. I mean, mean, come on. It used to, when Ted Tripp wrote this, 
You walked down the street, people didn't know what earbuds were. And, and you did a phenomenal, what is today a countercultural thing. You said hello to somebody. And they often responded, even in New York, where to do that, to look somebody in the eye is an act of aggression. Now it's the earbuds. And people don't want to talk. They don't want you to enter into their world. So if you can get to the point that they're just willing for you to enter their world, remember that's threatening to people, okay? But, but you enter their world. Listen for the entry gates. Where are they afraid? Where are they angry? Where do they feel guilty? Where are they anxious? Where do they feel shame? Okay, so, so you're looking for those entry gates and focus, folks, on the person not the problems. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, Tripp has some excellent illustrations. He talks about recognizing entry gates. He says, train yourself to listen for four things that will show you where the person is struggling. One, listen for emotional words. I'm angry. I'm afraid. This is one I'll get from women. I just can't stop crying. I can't stop crying. Those are emotional things. Two, listen for interpretive words. This shouldn't happen. I guess I'm getting what I deserve. I wonder if it's even worth getting up in the morning. Why is this happening to me? God must hate me. That's an interpretative word, okay? And when people say, I'm just getting what I deserve, you'll have to pop their balloon and say, hey, listen, if we got what we deserve by nature, it's hell. So please, you know, you're not there. Right, so, but that, that's an interpretative word. Three, Listen to self-talk, and you'll get a lot of this in our culture. It's so self-centered. I'm such a failure. And incidentally, the answer to that is, is we all fail, folks. You realize that? You know, it, this is not cynicism as a parent. This is realism. Did I fail as a parent? Did Margaret? You bet. All the time. You're either carnally strict or you're carnally soft. All the time. Because we're fallen people and we're dealing with fallen people. That doesn't mean you're a failure. All right? God, God is, he takes crooked sticks and cuts straight paths. Okay? But, but that's self-talk. I'm such a failure. This always happens to me. I don't have what it takes to face this. So listen to And you'll get a lot of these I words. Okay? I, I, I'll tell you about one today. This drives me nuts. Secular counseling, self-care. And, 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 and a husband, for example, is told, but you need to take care of yourself. And that is true. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. The Bible says he who loves his wife loves himself. And the fact of the matter is, when you give yourself for the good of other people, you're going to help yourself. So, but, but, but listen to those, that, that kind of uh, self-talk. And then listen for God talk. You won't hear much of it, incidentally, at first, but I thought I was doing what God wanted. God simply didn't hear my prayers. Here's a big one. How could God let this happen to me? You know your answer? You've got to be careful how you say it. It's because God has a love for you that's beyond anything you could ever imagine. It's called tough love. But, but you may not, probably don't want to say that at first, but listen. Listen, and, and, and I, don't like, I don't like to sit in front of people with my legal pad and write down notes. I, I, I'm not a shrink. 
but try to remember as much of this as you can. So there, there's your, your four things. It's in Tripp's book. Show that you really identify with the person. Let, 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 just let me understand what you're saying, or maybe you could repeat this in different words, but I want to be sure that I know what you're getting at. Every, every time your husband walks in the door, you, you, you want to cry. That, that's it. And you might want to develop it. Well, what is it? What emotions go through your mind? But, but show that you really identify with the person. You're not solving things. You know, there's a, there's a, cute, little, uh, a cute little YouTube video. And there's a, a, a woman that has a nail. It, it doesn't really have a nail in her head, but it's a nail in her head. And she's bothered by this nail in her head. And her husband says, but, but honey, you've got a nail in your head. We need to take it out. And she doesn't want to talk about the nail in her head. She hurts. And, and she feels miserable. <laughs> okay, so listen. Listen to enter into their lives. Don't try, don't try to solve. Men are great at this, you know. A woman's got three words out of her mouth, and the husband's got the solution to all the 60 problems she hasn't had a chance to even talk about. So show that you really identify with the person. You can do it by restating what, what she said to you or he said to you. I did this for ladies originals, a lot of she references. Let the person know that God is there. He understands and he's at work. And here's where the Psalms are so helpful. Mark particular sections in your Bibles. I mean, Psalm 23, that's got the whole gospel in, a, in six verses in there. Uh, Psalm 77 for depression. There's the, the psalmist has an eye problem. He's focused on himself. I couldn't sleep. I, you held, you held, there's God, but you held my eyelids open. I couldn't sleep. And then, then he comes to realize God hasn't changed. It problems with him. God hasn't changed. And he goes back to this. So there's a, it's for depression, Psalm 77. Psalm 91 for fear. Um, you know, a thousand falling at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it won't come to you. If you feel unloved, Psalm 103. So, so Psalms are excellent for this. Mark particular sections in your Bibles and use them with people. But folks, remember, this is war. I remember, I think I've told you this, when I came to New York, it was a very different ministry than my first pastorate. And it wasn't long, Margaret. We were here just a few months. And who do we have? Nathaniel and Jonathan, I think. And uh, that was computers. It was the TRS-80. They called it the Trash-80 that you got at Radio Shack. Radio Shack still around? I don't know. So I, I don't know if they're around. But there we got to Radio Shack, and I got to know the manager of the Radio Shack. And, you know, I always would say, well, I'm a pastor and so on. And he, this guy opened up to me. He was having marriage problems and issues, really something. You wouldn't find that as much today. So we went out for dinner. An hour and a half battling for this man's soul. I got home. I felt like I was a dish rag that had been wrung out. Because it is a war for people's souls. And God must be on our side or we lose the battle. And you honor God by honoring him and your dealings with him. He's not honored if you don't mention him, okay? You must be an instrument to draw a person to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, not to yourself. A lot of ministers get in trouble with this. They love the adulation. People come to them for help, for counseling, to answer their questions. You begin to get puffed up. Very dangerous. You don't draw them to yourself. And when you pray at the end, say, Lord... There's no way we can solve this problem on our own. 
you've got to work and pray for specific things. Let the person know of your commitment to him or to her. Why? God says, I will be with you. And when you represent Christ, then you want to represent that in some way, being with them and near them and helping them. That's why when it comes to needy people, we try to give practical ways that we can be of help to them. This is what makes Christian counseling so demanding. It's the outworking of real love. And quite frankly, and I've worked enough with ministers that I know this, that's why a lot of ministers don't want to do this stuff. You don't do this in 40 hours in a week, even in a small church like the Haven. Right? It's, it's self-giving love. The fruits that you're looking for in the person you're counseling are, and this would be very helpful, one, horizontal trust. He or she is willing to trust you. That's huge. People don't trust anybody in our culture today. Do you? You trust lawyers. You trust politicians. Bankers? You trust bankers today? Do you trust your neighbor? Do you trust? No, no, no. Our culture doesn't trust people. And especially if you're a minister, you've got two strikes against you first. Because, you know, all ministers are, you know, they're, they're like Elmer Gantry. You know, they're, they're, they're phonies. So you've got to get them to trust you first. That's, that's huge. Um, that vertical trust, he or she trusts in God. And you do that by giving them hope from God's word focused on Christ. Never, ever, ever leave a counseling session and say, well, you have really laid out a mess. If repentance is the vomit of the soul, this whole table is covered in your vomit. So let's pray, and next week when we meet, we'll try to clean it up. Don't you dare do that. Say, hey, listen, this is a mess. It really, sin really fouls things up. Do you, believe, ask, do you believe Jesus is greater than our sins? If they're honest, they're going to say, well, I guess I believe it, but I kind of doubt. Fine. I believe, help my unbelief. He really is. Let's look to him and ask that he work. And in specific ways, let's pray that the Lord work to show you his goodness and his care and how much he loves us until we meet again. Okay? And, and next time, and I will always say, no, next time we're going to deal with this. People come to you and they've got, to use a different metaphor, They've got a ball of string, and there's knots in it. And their way of dealing with the knots is this kind of a thing. You say, no, 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 wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's take one knot out at a time, and let's undo that, and we'll get to the next one. Okay, so, so that, anyway, give all, you always give hope all right, with, with people. Um, and then commitment to the process. The person is willing to talk with you again and let you work with him or with her. And that's what you look for, okay? They, you say, no, I, I really would like to meet with you again to start dealing with things. Are you up for that? Yeah, I really do. This was helpful. Good. So that's, that's really about all you're looking for, and it's a lot, it, at least in your first session. And then each session, you want to move people forward a bit. Okay, and then incarnate. Okay, so that's entering the person's world. Incarnate the love of Christ. What we are and what we do, incarnate, is in your own flesh, you show the love of Christ. What we are and what we do are just as important as, if not more important than what we say. I want to read you. This is, this is Pastor Shishko's key text for the ministry. I, I am utterly fascinated with it, and I don't like the way the ESV translated it. So 
I'll tell you the right way to translate. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5. Sometimes translators, in the name of wanting to make something easier to read, they'll sacrifice the content a bit. I mean, you know, the Thessalonians, it was a model of what you want God to do. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Everybody's talking about this work in Thessalonica. Why? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you. How did he know? Because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And here's where the ESV, they put a period They create the next sentence, Uh uh-uh. The text literally says, with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Folks, that's New Testament pastoral ministry. Not just word, and I'll give you an illustration in, in a moment, from men that in many ways I respect, but a view of ministry I reject. It didn't just come to you in word. There was demonstration of the spirit and of power because you knew what kind of men, what kind of people we were among you for your sake. That word among you is the word for Christ, the God who dwelt among us. Ministers are meant to dwell among God's people. Now, I won't mention names, but I'll tell you what the popular view of ministry is today. You see it in some of the independent churches that are very big. I see it in one of our sister denominations. What's the work of the minister? You study, you preach, you arrange to get your sermons into books. The books make you famous, hopefully, if you could sell them, and you keep at it. I abominate that view of ministry. I've had people say to me, Bill, why are you in a smaller church? You could take these sermons and put them in book form and become famous with them and have a big church. I want to vomit it out. That's not New Testament ministry. That's the ministry of a luminary. And believe me, if I had 40 hours a week, Just to study, to put a sermon together for a book, I could do that. That's not what the Bible says New Testament ministry is about. Our word came to you not only in word, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. We pray for that, how it came in connection with the fact that they knew that Paul was a genuine article. And folks, if your pastor's not the genuine article, you don't want him. Okay. But, and and this, see, this has worked out in you individually. You're willing to be with people. You're willing to, you know, you, you say, here's my cell phone number. Be careful how you give that out. But I want you to know you get depressed, you get discouraged. If it's a man, you're battling, you're in a motel, you're battling with giving in to sin. You call me, all right? Not that you're going to save them, but it's a help to them. And that's, that's what it is, okay? Um, 
And, it, and, and what are the right clothes for the job, as I put it? I think Tripp does too. Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Put on them, which is the language of putting on clothing, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, which is specific acts of goodness, humility, meekness. Meekness is self-control under pressure. And you've got people, they're angry. They're angry with everybody, including you. And you listen to it. And patience, bearing with one another. And if one another has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Okay, so, and then then it goes, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called to one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. That's what you're doing in counseling. In all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You can't do it in the name of the Lord Jesus if you counsel people their big issue is sin, and you don't even mention Jesus. Okay? So, so um, uh, that, that's the right close for the job. And really, what is it? It's a summary of the character of Christ himself that's here, through you. Then you identify with this, what time we have? Identify with the suffering and be prepared. This can be very, very scary. People begin to open up to you and they tell you things they haven't told anybody else. Now, this is not what I want to cover here, but it's a major issue for churches. If it's a capital crime, you've got to report it. There's a lot of churches that are in deep doo-doo right now because men have come to pastors, or they've come to them, and they've confessed, they've confessed child abuse, domestic abuse. And I don't mean just yelling at your wife once in a while. I mean physical abuse. That has to, when there's physical abuse, that has to be reported. When it's a crime, it's got to be reported. But that's for another day. You must show the person that Christ identified and identifies with suffering. Now, Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 10 through 12 For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now Jesus was perfect, but he obeyed perfectly is the idea. For he who sanctifies, that is Christ, and those who are sanctified, his people, all, literally it's all are of one. They're they're, they're in union. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that you have given to me. This is how closely Christ identifies. This is my brother that's suffering. This is my sister that's suffering. And in Christ, you identify with them. And then give comfort and show compassion using your story. Not to draw attention to yourself. Don't jump in with this. 
But listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 3 through 11. These are kind of, along with being competent to counsel, <clears throat> this is kind of basic biblical counseling. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the, and here the King James has it right, the self-same comfort, the very same comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Egypt. We, or in, in Asia, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Sound familiar? Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing on us granted through the prayers of many. You know what that means? Biblical counseling is not a professional shrink behind a desk who listens and says, I've got six different medications that I can prescribe. Let me give you the one that has the least side of it. Oh, wait a minute. It's a person who says, I haven't been through identically the same thing, but I can relate mm -hmm. to what you have been through because I've been through something similar. And whatever else this session does, we need to be committed to pray for one another and to help one another. We are all in this together. That's, that's an essence of biblical counseling. And incidentally, for people who are not comfortable with that, you know, I never, I don't open up anything about my past. Excuse me. You've got to be guarded. But part of Christian counseling is you talk about how the Lord ministered to you, and you're meant to minister that to others. Okay? <clears throat> so um, show the compassion using your story of suffering and comfort and hope. You've got to be honest about your own struggles and difficulties and how Christ helped. I love Pastor Mallon, and he's going to teach one of these classes in a month. And um, people come and say, um, I think I'm obsessive compulsive. And, and John says, I am too. Let's talk. <laughs> it breaks the ice, okay? And then accept, I love this, with an agenda. The goal is to listen, enter, incarnate, and identify displaying the character of Christ, right? But it's also to display and present the goal of Christ for his people, that they be transformed from within and brought to worship him rather than themselves. All right, so Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and then I'll finish with a quotation from Tripp. For the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people. That's what we all need. Training us to renounce, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled. The word means literally a saved mind. Self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Folks, that's your goal too. When you work with people, it's a goal of ministry. And then at the very end, this wonderful statement from page 138 in these chapters from Tripp. The most important encounter in ministry is not the person's encounter with us, but his encounter with Christ. Our job is simply to set up that encounter so that God would help people seek his forgiveness, his comfort, his restoration, his strength, and his wisdom. That's it. That's it. So the beginning of the Emerald City of Biblical Counseling.